Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my pleasure to be joined by Bryce Traster, editor of American Literature and the New Puritan Studies, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. Bryce, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Ryan. It's great to be here. Well, you've uh, edited this wonderful collection of original essays that helped to to really mark a something of a turning point in this long history of American Puritan studies. I'm so excited to get into this with you. But first, I wonder, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. And thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be talking about this work uh, with you and with your audience. Um, I have been working in the field of early American literary studies for most of my academic career. Um, I first studied the Puritans back in 10th grade in high school. It's astounding that I even remember that. Um, And I took that interest into my undergraduate and graduate work, uh, which I did in California um, at uh, UC Berkeley, where I studied with some amazing professors who instilled in me both a respect for and a love for the early colonial period uh, in the history of American literature. Um, and, you know, it was um, a real privilege for me to be able to have an academic career in Canada, which I ended up doing after I finished my doctorate. I moved to Ontario and worked at the University of Western Ontario in London the other London, um, uh, for about 20 years. And I felt like it was a real privilege to be able to work in American literature from afar. That is to say, to um, work with colleagues and with students studying these periods in American literary history um, from the kind of vantage point of a different national perspective. Um, I felt like it was a privilege in the sense that I was able always to maintain a certain amount of distance from some of the uh, conversations and the disagreements and the arguments that we were having as scholars of the field um, and to sort of try to bake that perspective into how I approached my own studies and my own research um, into the colonial period. So I, I really feel lucky that my personal life circumstances enabled me to take up a certain kind of critical perspective that I hope has been uh, an advantage um, for my work and and hopefully for readers of my work. That's fantastic. Well, Bryce, this new collection is called American Literature and the New Puritan Studies. So I'm wondering if you might, for those of our listeners who may not be totally up to date, what were the old Puritan studies? What's What's been the landscape of uh, the study of Puritanism and American studies for the last century or so? Okay, I don't know how long we have today, Ryan, but that is a great (laughs) question. And you've really gotten to the heart of what the book is trying to do in terms of, as you said earlier in your introduction, uh, repositioning uh, the field of um, early American studies in relation to Puritan studies. Um, I'll try to get at some of that great question by talking for a minute about the title itself. Um, The title of the book is not without controversy, and indeed, I think some of the difficulty of the book's title is really where uh, really the heart of the book's individual essays are, Um, because the title makes a number of assumptions. Um, One is that there is such a thing called American literature and that we all agree what that thing is. Um, The second is that there is a new version of a Puritan studies 
And even the idea that there is such a thing called Puritan studies is not necessarily self-evident, even to those of us who have toiled in the period, uh, in the early modern period, which we usually take to be the kind of pre um, 18th century, 16th, 17th century period in uh, English and American uh, cultural and religious histories. Um, so the idea that there's such a thing as American literature, this is something that scholars of American literary studies have not had any real agreement about for the entirety of my academic career. So we're talking 30 years or so. We have been wondering about, arguing about, going to the conferences, publishing our articles and our books talking about what this construct of American literature really is. So part of the old Puritan studies is based on the understanding that whatever it was that we were studying back in the day when the earth was still cooling, as we sometimes call it, um, whatever Puritan studies was, it somehow led inexorably to this thing called American literature. Um, This was the understanding that everything that happened before this thing called American literature led into what American literature became. So when we studied, for example, John Winthrop's famous model of Christian charity, which was the lay sermon that he famously allegedly preached aboard the Arabella before it departed uh, the Western shores of England um, for the quote unquote new world, what became New England. And he talked about America becoming this city on a hill In the old version of Puritan studies, that viewpoint of the city on the hill became a kind of defining feature of what the edifice of American literature became. And so when you get to the Declaration of Independence, when you get to, let's just pull any, I mean, really almost anything out of the hat, when you get to a novel of Nathaniel Hawthorne, that idea that Winthrop's vision of a special status city on a hill, this Protestant experiment in New England, this place where pure religious beliefs and practices could be undertaken without fear of um, interference or government repression, arrest, uh, the police state, and so on. All of those things became the determining features of Nathaniel Hawthorne's work on the novel in the 19th century. Again, that is the old Puritan studies. And that became something like what I call in the book a straw argument, that uh, has become the sort of way in which critics criticize Puritans, Puritanism and its critics for undertaking a continuation of that tradition of the sort of Puritan vision in all of its sort of majesty becoming the determin- determining origins story of the American nation and its literature. So... Hmm. You know, what we were trying to do in the book and what I invited my colleagues who contributed to the book to do was to um, study Puritanism from some perspective other than that old nationalist enfolding force that Puritan studies had long been associated with. And I think most of the essays, in fact, I'll just say all of the essays do undertake uh, different understandings and different approaches to some old questions So making sense of old ideas in new ways was another kind of general feature of what we were trying to aim at. Um, But the idea, again, that we we all agree that there's this thing called American literature and we can call it and define it because it holds these properties was something that the book set out to complicate rather than to uh, seamlessly affirm, as some would say, Puritan studies traditionally had done so historically. Hmm. That's very interesting, Bryce. 
So we'll get a little bit into some of the contributors' essays um, as we kind of close our discussion here. But in your in your introductory essay, you give three really helpful markers that are starting to define a new approach to Puritan studies. So let's talk about the first one, which is secularization. Uh, it seems as though you you identify something of a, a shift from from almost a post religious approach to a post secular approach yeah. is that is that an accurate reading yes, and that is beautifully accurate ryan and and you did a much more succinctly than i think i ever have um <laughs> so so there are a couple of pieces here one is that um you know there's a general understanding that there's this thing called secularization that happened yeah. um in the modern period across europe and in the united states and there are different features to what we sometimes refer to now as the secularization thesis um, but one of them, very broadly speaking, of course, is that we stopped being religious and we started becoming something else. We became more scientific. We became committed to the tenets of empiricism, of um, natural philosophy, uh, and so on. And we stopped sort of believing in the God and the machine that was determining you know, all human effort everywhere and for all time. Um, so again, this is the kind of, it's a bit of a straw argument again about what secularization was and what it looked like and what its effects were on the modern. So what that kind of contributed to was a perspective on Puritanism as part of the nation's religious past, but that perspective depended on our shared commitment to the idea that that religious sort of set of practices that we associate with Puritanism was indeed completely and safely in the past. In other words, its pastness defines our relationship to it today. And this is, I think, what we mean sometimes when we talk about a post-religious perspective. In the kind of, in the post-secular approach, what we're trying to suggest is that rather than think about religion as being altogether in the past and therefore historical, Rather, we think of certain religious practices as occupying different historical periods in our collective past, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it exerts no influence today or that our perspective on those things is wholly secular. That is to say, we have you know, successfully executed our escape from the prison of religion into the kind of you know, freedom of our, of our secular perspective. Rather, what we're proposing is, are certain kind of ways of understanding continuity mm. between differing religious intensities of the past and how we think about those things today. And we aren't necessarily free from those intensities, um, even from our perspective. And I'll give you one quick example. Take the idea of zero tolerance, which is something that we talk about in relation to contemporary workplace um, you know, sort of strategies, anti-bullying, anti-harassment, those kinds of things. We hear people say, oh, we're taking a zero tolerance approach um, to these kind of contemporary um, workplace or behavioral practices today, even legal practices. Um, think about that for a minute, though. Zero tolerance. That is a deeply religious term, right? The hmm. idea that we have to exert or not exert toleration for other people's behaviors or beliefs was a way to think about our relation to specifically religious understandings of how to uh, practice faith, how to believe, who to believe, and so forth. In other words, we use a vocabulary today that is borrowed from and refers to a religious past in some of our most, quote-unquote, secular practices today. 
So post-secularism is, is inviting us to take a different perspective on those matters as it relates to our understanding of the religious past, and in this case, our Puritan past, that yes, no, we're not Puritans anymore, and I, for one, am very happy about that. Um, but that doesn't mean that what happened in those years and how those um, sort of practices might still be influencing us today, it doesn't mean that those things are completely in the past either. And so this different perspective on religion is important. Secondly, <laughs> um, one of the interesting things about the kind of um, academic study of religion is that there is a cultural collision, I would say, between what we think of as being the secular academy uh, and the object of study, in this case, Puritanism. Um, there is and has been historically, I think it's fair to say, some skepticism of academics who study our religious past on the grounds that their interest, their very interest in those things betrays something about those critics, about those scholars. Why are we interested in these things? In other words, to study a religious past is in the minds of some to in some way agree with or to believe in even those religious artifacts of the past. So when I, for example, teach Mary Rowlandson or John Winthrop or even Nathaniel Hawthorne to my undergraduate classes, I sometimes get commentary from my students saying, you obviously are a religious person because hmm. of the way that you teach this material or that I teach this material. And of course, that's it's not even true. What rather they're kind of picking up on is that I teach the religious past of the country from a very respectful position rather than as an object of sort of withering critique and pointing out what's wrong with these things. And students misunderstand that as being my expression of religious faith. So in other words, in the academy, the study of our religious past is often mistaken for being an expression of one's religious beliefs. And that's not at all the case, um, I think, when we're trying to put together a book that's merely talking about different ways to understand how those Puritan pasts, plural, continue to inform the way that we think about uh, in the contemporary aspects of, um, uh, of our more recent past and even about the present today. Fascinating. Well, let's build on the significance of religion. You bring in this theme of post-nationalism, and you, you make this interesting observation that theologically conservative Protestantism is not actually in and of itself a great holder or container of religious nationalism, um, which is a big part of how the old Puritan studies has been approached. So, so what are the new opportunities of a post-nationalist approach to American Puritanism? Well, I think you've actually kind of said it yourself just there in that great question. Um, you know, I think in the contemporary, we often look with dismay at the ways in which, in American politics anyway, um, America's religious past is being used and mobilized on behalf of a contemporary nationalist. And today, I think we can say in 2021, a white nationalist agenda for um, organizing political life in the United States today. In other words, Contemporary conservative thinkers and politicians often invoke the Puritan past in order to um, generate and to um, engage support for their contemporary political visions. Right. So we're trying to, you know, um, we're, we're, we're trying to recruit the Mayflower on behalf of 
white nationalism in 2021. Now, of course, many of us, myself included, have a lot of skepticism about that. But it comes from a very old debate within Protestant um, cultural politics of the 17th century. And that is the debate um, that really played out in the early colonial period between Roger Williams and John Winthrop, um, particularly uh, when Roger Williams, who was a radical theologian and mostly a separatist, um, told John Winthrop that the kind of theocracy that Winthrop was trying to build uh, inappropriately mobilized Christianity on behalf of the nation. And he wrote a series of really quite pointed polemics um, which have really great titles like This Hireling Ministry, None of Christ's, um, <laughs> to attack this idea that religion could be motivated on behalf of nationalist or nation building, perhaps not nationalism particularly. Um, and Winthrop responded in the way that only a good autocrat could by banishing him and sending him to Rhode Island, where all of the religious heretics and problem figures went in the early part of the colonial period. Um, but Williams had an interesting point, which was what you just said, that that a true Calvinist um, conservative, we call it today, but true Calvinist theology is not a good vessel for nationalism because it actually cheapens the, the sort of salvational potential of what in Williams and other conservative theologians' viewpoints um, Protestant, Protestantism offered to Western Christendom, um, which was a kind of program for salvation for the select. And if you mobilize it on behalf of a kind of cheap civil politics, you're actually diminishing the majesty of God that is the so sovereign president presence inside of that theology. And so there emerged this debate between, on the one hand, this idea that religion could kind of mobilize um, civic life in some particular way versus a viewpoint that the same religion was not appropriate for um, actually sort of wielding the sword on behalf of the civic um, of civic authority. So that debate between sort of um, Protestantism as a, as a force for um, the consolidation of national identity um, versus its critique in the form of what Roger Williams said, in many respects determined and in some ways even continues to determine the life of Protestantism um, within American cultural politics writ large. Um, you know, do we invoke religion to kind of um, advance the aims of the nation? We do it all the time. Every American president since John F. Kennedy has invoked some version of John Winthrop's City on the Hill speech um, when they made their inaugural or some other significant presidential address. Uh, that's the focus of Abram Van Engen's fascinating um, essay uh, in the book that we're talking about today. Um, that kind of image of the city on the hill has become one of the primary vehicles for presidents to assert uh, or to denounce even sometimes the state of American national identity and community. Are we that city on the hill? But you have to go back to Winthrop. For Winthrop, it was, an, it was partly apology and partly a warning. Right, which is that we have a lot to lose if we don't do this right. And we still have politicians today arguing about whether or not we're doing it right, whether or not we're, we're doing it right. And so one of the contributions that I think our book is trying to make in an academic arena, of course, is if we actually sort of um, view Puritanism as a historical force in American national identity and 
one of the premises of that view today is that it was a far more complicated and diverse and historically changing sets of Puritanisms, plural, then I think it will be more difficult if this book can translate perhaps into some educational projects, it would become increasingly difficult for people basically to abuse Puritanism for their own contemporary political ends if we can all begin to agree that Puritanism was not one single thing for the country and therefore is not one single thing today. And that's a reason why I think one of the reasons we did this book as an anthology was to get multiple perspectives on that object um, into kind of one place, which is what the book is trying to be. Yeah, I, I love that phrase that you just said, that Puritanism isn't one single thing. And that really brings us to your third post. Uh, so we've had post-secular, post-national, uh, post-colonial interpretation. So there's this new post-colonial historiography that's been emerging in the early 21st century. Um, what opportunities does that give to view Puritanism as something um, much more diverse than a, a British Empire yeah. reading. Yeah. Oh, it, it provides a lot of opportunity and so important an opportunity to reconceive of the entire project of the scholarship of Puritanism today. And one of the things that I'm most proud of about that book um, are the number of contributors who really took up that perspective in their kind of uh, in the work that they were bringing to bear um, on you know, their understanding of Puritanism today and how it contributes to our understandings, uh, plural, of American literatures, plural. That's another point today. Um, for example, Betty Booth Donahue um, writes about the significant contribution of indigenous voices that have hitherto been ignored um, in understandings of 17th century um, historiography of Puritan colonial settlement. Um, and that was a perspective that people weren't talking about 30 years ago. Um, and what that does is it changes right away what it is that we think that we can say about the Puritan historical viewpoint versus a single indigenous viewpoint and then call that what Puritanism singular was. In the post-colonial view that, um, that Professor Donahue, for example, is taking up, there is no single version of what all of this amounts to or what it means. Um, similarly, Nan Goodman's essay on uh, Sabbatai Sevi and the role of um, a sort of, you know, almost Baroque uh, Orientalism in some of Cotton Mather's vision of, uh, of salvation and how it filters through Turkey and through um, what was called the Ottoman Empire. Um, you're getting a kind of an account of Puritanism that isn't even located in New England, right? The perspective is rather elsewhere in the world. And on the one hand, it could look like it's a sort of new sort of globalism, right, on the part, you know, so Puritanism goes global. Maybe it would be better if we just left it safely tucked in, you know, you know the, the environs of Boston. Um, but that's not what Goodman's kind of point is. It is rather that the kind of um, understanding Cotton Mather and his millennialism as a potentially global vision, it makes Puritanism, Puritanism from that perspective less singularly attached to a single New England version of what Puritanism's contribution to the nation was. 
And I think that's a good thing because it opens up this kind of post-colonial perspective and puts it into practice in recognizing that these differing 17th century figures, even as stodgy a Puritan as Cotton Mather, uh, if you view it a different way, it becomes something other than just a stodgy Cotton Mather, quote unquote, fanning the flames of Salem, you know, the Salem witch trials. There were no flames, by the way, in Salem. I have to always say that. Um, nobody was burned in Salem in 1692. But Cotton Mather becomes a much different version of Puritanism if we think of the role that he played in uh, contributing to millennial thinking um, that was from a more global perspective. Um, so there you have another example of how postcolonialism opens up the archive of Puritanism to interpretations that could lead it to places other than a singular nationalist account uh, of what America became as a consequence of it. Hmm. Well, Bryce, you've helped edit this wonderful volume, um, that, and you've given us some some teasers throughout our conversation about what readers can um, expect to find in there. I'm wondering, as we close our discussion here, um, maybe I'll just ask a b- bit more generally: who who would benefit from from getting a copy of this book? What are, what are some of the audiences that you think? Um, could be served by the essays that are in here uh, and, and, and what are your hopes for the, the directions that, that, that are in front of us as you've charted so, so eloquently in this introductory chapter? Thanks. I mean, you know, I, um, there are multiple audiences for a book like this. It is an academic book and written by and largely for academics. However, we did place a premium on writing the book in accessible prose. Um, uh, I did my best and the contributors did their best to what we sometimes call de-jargon their prose and not to use the specialized language of literary criticism and literary theory in, in, in writing those essays. And we really did place a premium on it uh, because we wanted people more than specialists um, of the early colonial period in the United States to read the book. One audience, though, that I would very much like to engage, I hope this book engages, would be more broadly the um, practitioners of American studies today. So other academics working across the full range of American studies from these these earliest colonial settlement periods, uh, even into the contemporary to as far as even yesterday. Um, and the reason for that is that I feel that Puritanism continues to be a little bit of a straw argument in the minds of many. Yeah. Uh, in casually and too often invoked as a convenient way to dismiss and or criticize um, certain tendencies in American history or to label them in certain ways that aren't necessarily helpful for trying to make our way uh, through the contemporary. So I would like more practitioners of American studies to kind of benefit from what these essays have to offer so that they would be perhaps more willing to understand Puritanism as being multiple, multiple Puritanisms, and that viewing American Puritanism this way might help us to have better understanding of the multiplicities of American literatures and histories and cultures today. So that's one group. Um, another group is um, I would very much like graduate students um, working in various fields of uh, religious and American studies to be able to benefit from the, from the essays. And for both of those audiences, so both practicing academics and, tra- and students who are in training, um, to be able to bring the, the insights that the book has um, to the undergraduate classroom experience. Uh, and undergraduate students, I think, will benefit from these essays as well. They are original essays. They're well-written essays. 
they're not super dense. Um, we didn't place a lot of as much premium on this sort of scholarly apparatus as we do on some other academic studies, particularly monographs, um, because we want students to be able to access um, these books as well. Of course, we're always looking for the general reader every time that we we publish a book. We would, you know, we would all like to be able to reach uh, multiple audiences and larger audiences uh, because we value work in the humanities and feel that that work is important broadly um, to the education uh, of citizens and, and peoples today. Um, I'm not so much I'm not so naive as to think that this is going to be an Amazon um, bestseller. But I do think that another audience are those readers, and they do exist, who are interested in an American past. Yeah. Uh, my own parents, uh, my father in particular, um, you know, is not himself a professional historian or academic, but he reads history and is interested in the American past. Um, he's read the book, I believe, and you know, hopefully he's learned something from it. Uh, I do think this book will challenge readers who go to the Puritans in order to confirm their sense of what America is or should be. Um, and I do think that those who look to Puritanism to secure the nation as this kind of exceptional nation chosen by God to lead the rest of the world out of darkness and into a light defined by a coterie of Protestants who settled in New England in the 17th century and their descendants, they're going to find a Purit- they're not going to find that Puritanism in this book. That's exactly who I would like to read this mm-hmm. book so that they can have better understanding of what Puritanism um, maybe really was. Um, and that might hopefully give some better understanding of how that past um, might be helpful um, for thinking about American national identity today. It's wonderful, Bryce. So you've been so kind to come and, and talk with us about this project. Uh, this has been out for a couple of years now. Um, since this project, what, what's been on the, the, the docket for you and what maybe can we be looking forward to from you in the, the months and years to come? Well, I, um, I'm still trying to, um, sort of think through a lot of these issues. Um, I'm just finishing now another collection of essays also for Cambridge, uh, on early American literary studies. Um, but a project that I've been working on for some time, but I've been sort of distracted because I have, I've had a lot of administrative um, duties in the last number of years, as one does when, when you get to my age. Um, I'm, I've been working in the area of um, the history of anti-vaccination rhetoric in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's a very long history and one that most people aren't aware of. A few academics have, um, have written on, for example, the 1721 Boston inoculation controversy um, that took place in which Cotton Mather was an important figure and in which Cotton Mather was the proponent of a what was radical um, strategy to inoculate against smallpox. Um, it was not uh, Jenner in England who first tried to vaccinate uh, by using um, the uh, by, by using the blood of infected people to vaccinate healthy people against infection. Cotton Mather uh, tried it in 1721 to a lot of consternation. So the roots of anti-vaccination rhetoric, which are, which is very loud today, I think we can all agree, um, in the United States go back a long way. And in fact, the whole kind of history of public health uh, hmm. is, in my view, in many respects, mediated by religion. And so the broad kind of project that I'm thinking about is the way in which in the United States, 
um, religion continues to mediate ostensibly non-religious conversations. Um, everything from anti-vaccination or sort of the language of vaccination um, to federal politics to uh, how we count election results. Um, in other words, I'm interested in how it is that all of our um, really kind of quote unquote post-religious conversations about American uh, cultural politics continue to be deeply influenced by and indebted to uh, the languages and perhaps even the structures of feeling that we associate uh, with some of the older variants of religious belief uh, in the United States. So broadly speaking, there's more to come hopefully one day on those topics from me. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, this has been a conversation with Bryce Traster, the editor of American Literature and the New Puritan Studies, available now from Cambridge University Press. Bryce, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ryan. It's been great to be here. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to our website at newbooksnetwork.com and find more author interviews. And I invite you to share this episode with someone who you think might find it interesting. That's the best way to support what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day.